right, brother? Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're taking a break from our walk through uh, the book of Samuel uh, and beginning this new series of sermons, which will last the next three to four weeks, and will carry us right into Advent season, where we will turn our attention to the Lord Jesus in his incarnation. Uh, as you're making your way to Ephesians, I want to give you just a little bit about what my goal is in this sermon series uh, uh, called Saving Faith. Uh, what, what, what is your goal, Pastor? What are we aiming to accomplish here? Uh, and the, the main thing I want to convince you of from the scriptures this morning and over the coming weeks is that there is a kind of faith that is the means by which God in Christ saves those who believe. There is a kind of faith that is the means by which God in Christ saves those who believe. On the one hand, there are many variations, or on the other hand, there's, there are many variations and deviations from that faith that will not lead to salvation, but instead to eternal destruction. So then some of the things which we will be tackling in this series of sermons is uh, aiming to answer questions and, and define and defend what in the world is saving faith. How do we get it? How do we know we have it? And how do we know it will last? And this series of sermons first began in my mind nearly uh, a year ago. Uh, as I was having conversations with a friend of mine who was pressing me to give a definition uh, for what faith is. Have, have you ever used a word so often that you've forgotten what it actually meant? Uh, it becomes so commonplace that when you're asked to define what in the world you're talking about, you actually struggle for the words to describe what it is you're trying to convey. This is where I was. But my friend, he, uh, he, had, uh, he had a definition of his own that he was pressing me to agree to. And I'll show you what that is. Uh, here on the slide, it was this. He defined faith as, let's see if I point this the right way. That's the wrong way. That's the right way. Here's what he said. He said, uh, uh, faith, Pastor Matt, is a willingness to admit uncertainty and the face of not being 100% sure, still taking a step. This is how he defined faith. And this definition began to sit on me in an uneasy way. He said, isn't faith a willingness to admit uncertainty and in the face of not being 100% sure, still taking a step? Here's why I struggle with such a definition. You see, as a pastor, there's one thing that I am convinced of beyond a shadow of doubt more and more every day. And that is that God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. I have 100% confidence in that statement, no bit of doubt or uncertainty in my mind. And so to, you can see where this would become a problem if we're going to define faith uh, as essentially a thing of uncertainty. And for me, to believe that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners would not be an act of faith. You see that, right? That's because I've become more and more certain of it, not less. So that conversation happened nearly a year or so ago, and I've been wrestling and thinking and studying to understand, what does the Bible have to say about what is faith? What is faith? And so this is the result uh, of, of the, that, that year journey for me. The world wants to define faith as the blind believing in something. It's blind because it has no data or facts upon which its beliefs rest. In other words, if there's no scientific laboratory which we would be able to measure and analyze our particular set of beliefs, then to believe in them would be an act of faith. 
The main feature, according to the world's uh, understanding of faith, is doubt and uncertainty. Where doubt exists, where uncertainty exists, and you still take the next step, they would say that is faith. But what does the Bible say uh, faith is? The, the closest we get to a definition in the scriptures, I gotta go the right way, is, is, is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, from Hebrews chapter 11, we learn that the central feature of faith is trust and confidence. In the Bible, the object of faith is always, listen, the Bible uh, says that the object of our faith is always God and his promises. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram has an encounter with God. Uh, and, and God has promised to give Abram, uh, to make him a father of many nations and to, uh, to, to, to uh, give him an offspring that would produce kings from his line. And in response to God's promises of countless descendants, the Bible says that Abram believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to Abram as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, verse 6. Commenting on this later, the Apostle Paul writes, uh, No unbelief made him unwavering concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that, he, that God was able to do what he had promised. This means then that faith is putting your trust in God and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. Faith is putting your trust in God and having confidence that he will fulfill his promises. Ultimately then, this means that uncertainty and doubt are not the main features of faith then, but rather trust and confidence in what God has actually said. So that's what faith is. But this sermon series is not just called faith, it's called saving faith. You say, well, what's the difference, Pastor? The difference is this, there's a kind of faith that you can have, and that it can be uh, faith about true things. Like you can have faith that God exists, and yet that kind of faith is not a saving faith. Let me give you two places where I think we see this, this type of faith in the scriptures. The first is in uh, John chapter 8. You have this conversation between Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem who had come for a feast. And Jesus is describing his person and work. And we're told this in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This statement irks his audience. They begin to push back arguing that they are not slaves to anyone, right? Jesus is here saying, if you, uh, it says that they've believed. He says, if you continue to believe, if you listen to what I say, then you will be set free, right? And these are Jewish people. And they say, well, 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 Jesus, we ain't enslaved to nobody. They begin to push back. In essence, they don't continue in his word, but reject his further teaching. Jesus' words to them ensure a debate, uh, issues in an ensuing debate. Uh, it makes it clear that in whatever sense it says here in verse 30 that many believed in him, it was a kind of belief that did not make them true children of God. Jesus says later uh, in, in verse 38, 41, and 44 of this passage that God is not their father and that they are not of God. 
These Jews had believed in Jesus. Don't miss it. It says in verse 30 that they had believed, many believed in his word, and yet, and yet they were still ensnared by the devil. They had not become true children of God. They were not of God. Whatever faith they have from verse 30 was not a saving faith. That's one example. The other example was Paul talking to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking to an established church in Corinth, a church that had heard the gospel, received the gospel, staked their very lives on the gospel, and had begun to see deliverance by the gospel. And then Paul says this in uh, chapter 15, verse 1. He says, uh, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And he throws this little line on the end there. Unless you have believed in vain. Paul could still uh, tell them that if their faith was not the kind of faith that endured, then their prior belief was in vain. I'm convinced that this means that it is possible, listen, it is possible to hear the gospel, receive it, stake your life on it, taste of the benefits of what conversion is in the form of freedom from sin, and still not have genuine saving That's what Paul's saying here. It is possible to have a kind of faith that is not a saving faith. What I want to do for the rest of this sermon over the next few weeks is examine what does saving faith look like and what is the nature of it. So if you are in your Bibles, meet me in Ephesians chapter 2. If you're there, say amen. Any more time, say hold up. In the book of Ephesians, we find some of Paul's best theology for the Christian life. In chapter 1, Paul's praised God for his sovereign grace and salvation, which the Ephesian church and you and I enjoy through Jesus. Also in chapter 1, Paul says that believers in Jesus have been chosen by the Father before the world was formed, and that we have redemption by the Son, and that we have the promise and assurance of the Spirit. Then in chapter 2, Paul takes a step back, and he begins to remind the believers in Ephesus that God is the main character in their story of salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of of mankind. You see, Paul begins this chapter with a rather blunt statement, a true statement where the prognosis is not good. Look what he says. He says, you were dead. You were dead. I wonder how the Ephesian church felt at that moment. What do you mean that we were dead, Paul? We came, we were there, we, we heard you preach. How could we do that if we were dead? You see, Paul's not commenting or uh, uh, thinking on their physical aliveness or, or deadness. Rather, he's talking about their spiritual deadness. Spiritually, these people were dead. And that's the state of every single person on the planet, even today, right now. Outside of Christ, men and women are walking around spiritually dead. And he says that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, He says, we were wretched people. We were wretched people. This is the complete opposite, by the way, of what the world tells us to think about ourselves. The world tells us that we are basically good, and if we just believe in ourselves enough, then we can do anything. 
That's the prognosis of the world. And then Paul is showing up on the scene and saying, that, that ain't true. That ain't true. A spiritually dead person is unable to do anything spiritually because, can anybody guess? Because they're dead. Spiritual dead people do spiritually nothing because they're spiritually dead. Paul's wanting us to understand that from this verse that there's no neutrality in life. As image bearers of God, what Paul is saying is that we were cut off, alienated, separated from God. We are in a sad predicament. But it's even worse than that because Paul said that we were following not just, not, not only was the fact that we were dead, but we were following hard after sin. Following hard after the world, following hard after the prince of the air, and following hard after our own sinful desires. It's this idea that uh, deeper and deeper into sins we went. I try to think of a good illustration of what uh, the, the, the wording that Paul is using here to convey. And what I came to mind was, uh, I'm from southern Ohio, so we always had uh, problems with drugs down there. I don't know if that's true up here yet. Maybe some. Uh, there's like four stages for uh, a drug addict. I don't know if you know this. Uh, the first stage is experimentation. Let me just try this, see what it's like. My friends are doing it. Seems like a good idea. Let me just try it. Nothing wrong with that, Pastor. The second stage is regular and casual use. We move past the stage of experimentation with drugs and, and farther and farther into just normal day-to-day grind. Before too long, that's not enough, though. We've got to up it a bit, and so we begin to use it more and more. This becomes into the, you move out of regular and casual into risky and abusive before finally landing all the way down in a drug addiction and dependency I can't live without it. This is the the image that Paul is painting for us. It's not that we're just merely experimenting, is what he's saying. It's not like you've merely taken a step in the wrong direction, and maybe perhaps if you just turn back, you'll be all right. He says, no, 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 you're all the way down. Drug addiction and dependency, you are addicted to your sin. You cannot live without it. That's the language that he's using here. Apart from Christ, every one of us, Not only are we spiritually dead, but we continue to push and pursue even further and deeper into our sin, becoming, as it were, more and more spiritually dead. And notice how Paul lands the plane there in verse 3. He said, uh, not only that, but we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our, Our spiritual deadness and disobedience resulted in us being justly under the judgment of God. What Paul is saying is that God is actually right and just to condemn you, to condemn us in our sins because he is holy. We've sang about all, all, all this morning, like we sang about the fact that we serve a holy God. What that means is that, uh, that he is completely righteous, completely just, no sin in him, completely holy compared to us. And he says that God has every right to condemn us in our sins because he is holy. God will not sweep your sins underneath the rug of the cosmos. In other words, Paul just has a bunch of bad news for these folks. Terrible news. But did you notice the type of language that Paul is using? He's speaking in past tense verbs. You see that? He says, you were dead. You once walked. 
We all once lived, all past tense verbs. This is because Paul is speaking, uh, uh, he's speaking this kind of language uh, because this type of language no longer applies to who he's actually talking to. He's just merely reminding them of where they've come from, not where they currently are. So so what happens? We move from uh, uh, without Jesus, dead, to with Jesus, alive. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, apart from Jesus, we're all dead. With Jesus, we become alive. We were lifeless, hopeless, under condemnation. But then in verse 4, Paul declares, but God. The idea there is that if, if God wasn't the one to move, if God wasn't the one to act, if God wasn't the one to step into the stages of history in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then there we would all remain in that condition. But he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, God was so moved to save you and I, not because he saw in and of us something worth saving. It wasn't like in all this deadness and all this spiritual corruptness and all of this filth and all these evil, sinful desires. He's like, but really underneath all that, Matt's a good person. That's not what he's saying. You see, even the drug addict who is uh, all the way down the hole into addiction and uh, dependency is worth, is worth saving because he's made in the image of God. Like, but what Paul is saying, like that's because, that, like that in the physical sense. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about spiritually, nothing worth saving. Spiritually, there was nothing there. We were not worth saving. The emphasis here is not that, that God saw something in us, but rather in who God actually is. Paul describes him here, uh, that he's moved to uh, save you and I because of his mercy, love, grace, and kindness. You see, this is the kind of God that he is. He's a God of mercy and love. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, it says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love there is the, the word hesed. And it's like, it's like the, the, the most struggling for language. It's, a, it's, it's God's unfailing, unwavering, loyal, merciful love. It's who he is. The hesed love of God for mankind. Psalm 103 verse 8 says it like this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, the whole Old Testament is struggling to find language to describe God. Like, like if you were going to just tell, um, let's just imagine, put yourself in the Old Testament, and you wanted to describe to your neighbors the kind of love that God has for people, what would you reach for? What illustration would you pull out? What example would you show? Well, for them, the most common Old Testament example which the people would reach to is like, hey, remember when he saved us out of Egypt? 
because he loves us. The Hesed love of God, like that's the kind of God that we serve. Steadfast love. But then you get to the New Testament. And how does Paul, what example does Paul reach for when he wants to show the sinners how much God actually loves them? Romans 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, then understanding that the, 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 the um, rescuing of the children of Egypt out of, uh, or the children of Israel out of Egypt is merely a type and a, and a picture of what God will ultimately do one day in Christ who would give him for us Paul says that even while we were still sinners, like not having done nothing good, spiritually dead, Christ died for us. This is the kind of God that we serve. Paul also says it's because of grace that we have been saved. So what is, what is grace? Grace is the undeserved favor from God. Like if you think about yourself and you take honest stock and evaluation of your life and your personhood, what would you ultimately say about yourself? Would you say you're someone who actually deserves God's righteousness, God's forgiveness, God's kindness? If so, then you, my friend, you do not understand what grace is. Grace is the undeserved favor from God. None of us deserve the kindness of the Lord. None of us deserve the mercy of God. None of us deserve the love of God. And that's why Paul uh, says that the, this is entirely a work of grace. Twelve times in the book of Ephesians, Paul will uh, mention this word grace. Grace. That God has freely given you and I right standing in the person of Christ. God the Father has been gracious to us because that is the kind of God he is. A.W. Tozer once said that what you think about God, uh, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And for Paul, when he thought about God, he thought of his justice, he thought of his righteousness, he thought of his mercy. He also thought of his love and grace and kindness. He knew the kind of God that he was talking about. And the thing that makes grace so amazing is the fact that none of us deserve it, and yet he gives it to us anyway. But now notice what, what Paul said that, that God has done in these verses. Right? He, he's done all that, but what, what, he, what he's accomplished then is moving us out of a state of spiritual deadness to being made alive with Christ. The image that should come to our minds here then is, is Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus, standing before the tomb, he called for the stone to be moved away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now Lazarus had been laying up in the tomb three days dead. And dead men don't just get up out the tomb because they're dead. So then what, what Paul is here saying in Ephesians chapter 2 is, is exactly like what Jesus did with Lazarus at the tomb. He said, uh, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Lazarus' heart began to beat again. Blood began to rush through his veins. He began to think. And I wonder what that was like for Lazarus as he was laying there dead. 
I don't know what dead men think, but there he was. He was laying there dead, and all of a sudden he hears a voice, and it calls his name, and it says, come forth. And what's he do? What's he do? It says he got up out the tomb. He, he, he did exactly what Jesus said. And so Paul is saying that you were Lazarus in the tomb, dead, spiritually so, and that Jesus is now calling each and every one of us to come forth. This is what salvation is. It's God, through Jesus, making dead people come to life. Do you see how big this is? Do you understand the weight of what we're actually talking about? Salvation is not just saying a prayer. Salvation is not just trying to be a better person. Salvation is not just starting some new religious routine like going to church. Salvation is God calling out to dead men and dead women and giving them new hearts, breathing life into them like he breathed life into Adam in the garden. This is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. This is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus in uh, uh, John chapter 3. He said, uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus is like, wait a minute, hold up. Can a, mom, can, a, can a grown man go to his mother again for another birth? And Jesus is like, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Jesus meant that in order for people to see the kingdom of God, they needed to go through a process of being made alive. They needed to be born again. There's a story of an 18th century evangelist, George Whitfield. Uh, and reportedly, he, uh, George Whitfield preached on John chapter 3 thousands of times. And one day at, the, at, the, at a sermon or a meeting, there he was preaching. And he's pouring out his soul. He's pouring out the fact that God has done all to save sinners. And a man came to this, uh, this, uh, this, this gathering, this meeting, but he didn't come to hear what George Whitfield was saying. As a matter of fact, it says that the man stuffed his rocks full of pockets such that when George Whitfield said his amen, he could take those rocks out and throw them at George Whitfield's head. He'd come with his pockets stuffed full of rocks to physically attack him once his sermon ended. And so George Whitfield pours out the gospel message of John chapter 3. And after that message, the man with the rocks in his pockets comes up to George Whitfield and he says this, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. That man got life that day through the gospel. God, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, reached inside that dead man and gave him a new heart. This is what salvation is, is what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 2. But look with me at verse 8. Verse 8. He said, Pastor, I thought this was a sermon on saving faith. You're talking about grace. Amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You see, Paul here in verse 8 reminds, uh, repeats that it is by grace that we have been saved. But it is also here that I want to turn our attention now in verse 8. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul has laid out all the pieces. Apart from Jesus, we're dead. With Jesus, we're made alive. And then the question this morning is, how does this happen? How does this happen? We say, well, Jesus gives you a new heart. Yes, yes. How does this happen? How do we go from being dead to being alive? 
What is the means by which we pass from deadness to newness of life? And, and Paul gives the answer here in verse 8. He said, the answer is through faith. It's through faith that we become made alive. Faith is the means by which God moves us from a spirit of death and destruction to a spirit of light and life. This is why the, uh, the author of Hebrews will go on in that same chapter on faith and, uh, and say, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is the mean by which God moves us from a spirit of death and destruction to a spirit of light and life. Now I want to be clear in, in what faith is and what faith isn't. You see, faith does not have as itself its object. What I mean by that, you ever been in a situation where things are going tough and you talk to someone, maybe a believer, and what do they say? They say, just, just, just have more faith. You ever, you ever, ever encounter that? Just, just, just muster up more faith. Well, that's placing the object of faith as faith itself. And that would never hold water. Because again, as I said earlier, the, the, the object of the story of the scriptures is that the object of our faith is God himself. Faith then that saves has as its object the story of what God has done in the world through Jesus. Faith is how we receive the benefits of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to God, died to pay the penalty for our sinful rebellion against God and rose from the dead to defeat sin, death, and the devil. By putting our faith in him, we receive forgiveness from our sins and the gift of eternal life. So that's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He said, through faith, that's how that happens. It looks like believing what the Bible says about God and about Jesus. This, 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 so understand, like the, a faith then is not merely just understanding propositional truths, though that's part of it. But rather, our faith doesn't, doesn't necessarily rest in the words on a page, but in a person in history, through God stepping into time and into space. Our faith then is not in words on a page, but in a person in history. This, you might be able to illustrate this as one commentator puts it. He said, you might be able to understand what faith might look like in the real world. When you see a child who looks up into his mother's face, that symbol of all protection. Or as a child looks into the father's eye, the, the symbol of all authority. That emotion then by which the little one hangs upon the loving hand and trusts the loving heart is the same as the one which glorified and made divine rises strong and immortal in its power when fixed and fastened on Christ and saves the soul. What the commentator is saying, break that down, is the emotion that a child feels when it hangs onto the hand of a loving parent or trusts in the same, that that is the type of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. It's looking not with eyes that we have in our head, but with spiritual eyes into who Christ actually is. It's the type of relationship which fully trusts in the person of Christ. I wonder, do you have that type of relationship with Jesus? This type of intimacy with God? Listen, the more kids I have, which I'm at five, four at this point, four at this point, <laughs> and uh, uh, the older I get, 
the more I think I'm beginning uh, to scratch the surface of what type of relationship the Father longs to have with his children. The type of freedom that exists for us in simply being a son or daughter. So as I have more kids, as they get older, as I get older, I begin to think, and see in my relationship and what I want for my son and my daughters to trust me. It's like that's just a picture of what God the Father wants us to have in him. So is that all there is to saving faith? Mere believe in what Jesus has done. And for this, I want you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're going to go really quick through here. i got a timer going, don't worry. Is all there is to saving faith then mere belief in what Jesus has done? And the answer is yes and no. Like what I did there? Yes and no. Let me show you that before you pull me off stage and call me a heretic. Uh, Acts chapter 2. I want to focus for a few minutes before we close on what the Bible teaches, specifically within the book of Acts. Teaches on what faith is and especially how the early church apostles thought of calling people, men and women, who have no understanding of the good news of Jesus, how they called them to faith. Acts chapter 2, look at uh, verse 36. Uh, Peter here is uh, calling Israel up and into faith. Uh, after he said, uh, he, he's laid out then the gospel story of who Jesus is, what's happened, what's at, what, all the events of the crucifixion, what's just happened. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter has just preached that these guys, the very people perhaps who are standing before him, that y'all just killed the Lord, killed Jesus with your bare hands. You've done this. Both the Lord and the Christ, God's anointed one, you, you've, you've killed him. And the text says that they were cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. So much so that they didn't know what to do. If they're the ones who killed the Messiah, listen, I want you to think just for a moment of, of the worst sin you've ever committed. Just go ahead, get it pulled up in your mind. What's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing you could do? Let's just, like, let's just leave the, the practical and go to the theoretical for a second. Think about the, what's the worst sin that you could possibly commit? You got it in your mind? I want you to think, could it be worse than killing God? Could it be worse than killing the Messiah? That's where these men were. The worst sins that you could, that's, I can't think of anything worse. Like That's probably the worst sin that you could probably do. And here they are. They've just heard it. They've heard who God was. They've heard who Christ was. They say, hey, hey, you're the one to blame for this. Laid it at their feet. Imagine the hopelessness. That's where these men were. They they, they said, "What, what shall we do then, Peter? Is there any hope left for us? 
Now notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, just have faith in Jesus. What's he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. We'll handle the baptism part some other time, but uh, for now, let's just think about this word repentance. He's, he's calling them to repentance. John Piper says repentance is not just regret. He says these men have already been cut to the heart. Think about it. They're already sorry for what they've done. They're already sorry for what they've done. And if they're like, okay, Peter, what do we do now? If repentance is just feeling sorry for what they've done, that would make no sense for what Peter's actually telling them to do. Peter says, repent. It's more than feeling sorry. It means following through on conviction and turning around, changing your mind and your heart so that you are no longer at odds with God, but in sync with God. Go to, very quickly, Acts chapter 26. Go to Acts chapter 26. I don't hear any Bible pages moving. Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is before King Agrippa. And he's talking about his calling as a minister for Jesus. And now he has been faithful to do what Jesus has told him to do. And he recounts for King Agrippa the story of the Damascus Road experience. You remember what the Damascus Road is for, for Paul. Paul is on his way with letters from the governing authorities with permission for him to pull Christians out of their home and slaughter them in the street. That's what Paul's doing. On his way to Damascus. Look at verse 12 in Acts chapter 26. It says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending. Now notice, this is what, so this is Jesus, kicks Paul off his horse, blinds him with this blinding line as if he was staring into the face of the sun. He says, I can't see anything. But, O king, there I was on my way to kill Christians, get knocked off my horse, get blinded. And I hear a voice, king. And I say, who are you, Lord? So Paul must have known enough about the voice to understand that it was the Lord who kicked him off his horse. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. And then he says, I'm going to send you on a mission. This time his name is Saul. It will become Paul later on. And here's the mission there. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, this turning around, this, this, this turning that leads to forgiveness and gave Paul his commission with these words, I send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. This is what repentance is. Repentance is turning from darkness to light, turning from Satan to God. It's a reversal of the direction of your life toward God. 
So go back to Acts chapter 2 then. Here they are, they're cut to the core, unsure if there's any hope remaining for them. And they say, Peter, brothers, what must we do? What should we do now, knowing all of these things to be true? What should we do? And the response that Peter has to the question, what shall we do? He answers, turn from your sin towards God. Repent. Repent. Go to Acts chapter 3 with me. Acts chapter 3. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 3, there's this lame beggar. Uh, He can't walk. His legs are busted. Uh, And there he sits, uh, and he asks Peter and John for some money. That's what beggars do. And they reply that silver and gold have we none, but you know what, lame beggar, Uh, we'll give you what we do have. And what we do have is worth more than silver, more than gold. We'll give you Jesus. And that's what they do. And it says that the man was miraculously healed, could walk. That's the story. That's the context. Look with me, uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 11, because this calls quite a stir. It's caused quite a stir in the, in the area. Uh, verse 11. When he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Uh, and when Peter saw that he addressed the men, the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God uh, of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Just look at the language Peter's using here. He's pulling zero punches. He's like, yeah, yeah, you guys did all that. You wanted a murderer instead of the, the, the author of life. He says, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and and his name by faith. In his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter preaches a sermon in which he's not pulling in any punches. And look how he lands the plane of his sermon. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your father's. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And watch what he tells them to do. Repent, therefore. Turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So he preaches this sermon where he doesn't pull any punches. I just, I just I want to preach like Peter. Just un, un, uninhibited by what you might think of me in here. Like He's like literally like stepping on toes. You all understand this. Like, way worse than I do. Anyways, and he, he, he lands the plane by calling them to repent. Again, here, Peter and John don't say, have faith. That's the response. They do say have, uh, the, the, it was through faith in his name. Uh, that's what's caused this man who is crippled to be walking. But the response to the people who've heard the sermon is a call for repentance. Go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 10, we see the good news of Jesus is not just limited to the uh, Jewish people, but is actually uh, being given to the Gentiles. And this is blowing the Jewish people's minds. This is blowing their minds. Like, they're like, I don't even know if we can trust it. And so, so, so in chapter 11, Peter is giving a report back to the church. And, and, and he says, he's like showing this vision, right, of, of, of food. Uh, and he says, I'm not going to eat that guy. That's, that's unclean food. And God's like, hey, Fool, don't call what, uh, what I've created uh, unclean. 
You see, what, what God is saying to, to Peter is that uh, the, the, the gospel message is not just for Jewish clean people, but it's also for all them dirty people, the Gentiles too. That's what the food was representing. But pick up the story with me in Acts chapter 11, verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go, remember, this is Peter giving a report to the church. He says, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. This is, Peter's like, yeah, all that's true. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit, this is blowing their minds, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Listen, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to us, as he gave to us, or gave to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, when the church people heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted what? Repentance that leads to life. Peter says here that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. He, he doesn't say he's granted faith. Repentance. Last one, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is now not Peter, but this is Paul now. In Acts chapter 17, he's uh, showed up uh, at Mars Hill. And he's going to preach a sermon that's so what it says in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also this altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of them. Uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Now watch this. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Here we see that Paul says God is commanding all people everywhere to repent, not to have faith. He doesn't say uh, all the commands, uh, uh, he, he doesn't say that he commands all people everywhere to have faith in Jesus, but rather to repentance. So therefore, let me land the plane here for us. What then, pastor, is the relationship between faith and repentance? If faith is the means by which God is actually saving us, what then is the relationship between faith and repentance? Here's the point. Faith and repentance are not the exact same thing. They're not. 
but they are bound up so tightly that to try and separate them would lead us into mass confusion. You can think of faith and repentance as the same side of a coin, or the, the opposite sides of a coin. On one side of the coin is faith, on the other side is repentance. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. On one side, you have faith, right? A, a belief in the gospel, like truly believing in the person and work of Christ, that he lived, died, rose again for sinners. Like you must believe that. You must have faith that that truly happened. But on the other side of the coin, you have repentance, which is just turning from your sins and turning to God. This is why Jesus would say in Luke chapter 13, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So then... The call on you this morning is to examine both sides of the coin of your life. Have you merely just believed and been believing and having faith without any understanding of what that actually looks like in the real world? In other words, have you proclaimed to have faith in what God has done through Jesus, but not actually repented of your sins and turned to God? Or, or on the other side of the coin, have you repented of your sins and turned to God and yet not trusting, not believing in the person of Jesus Christ? Saving faith is both of these things. You must repent. Like you, sitting in this room, you must repent. And you must also believe the gospel. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't repent, if you don't believe the gospel then the way that Paul described the pre-conversion life of a Christian is how you are currently defined. Dead, wretched, hopeless, excluded from the life of God, following after the blindness of the world, following your own sinful desires, doomed and destined for destruction under the wrath of God. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. If these men who physically murdered the author of life can find hope and forgiveness of that, and listen, you can right now believe the gospel, repent of your sins, and be made alive with Christ. You can receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, you might say, I, I have repented, I have believed the gospel, but man, am I struggling. Listen, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not something you do when you first come to know who the Lord is. Repentance is an ongoing life of the believer. It's part of what actually makes saving faith, saving faith. It's lifelong. We must continue repenting. We must continue believing the gospel. Remember, uh, Paul's writing Ephesians to a, a church. And he's calling them again to repent and believe the gospel. Over and over again, the fight of faith and the life of a believer in Jesus is a constant pulling ourselves out of the driver's seat. Um, uh, most of us, I know I'm over time, but that's Okay. Because um, I said so. The, uh, most of us view uh, life in Christ and coming to know Christ as our Savior. Uh, you can use the, like, the illustration of like driving on a highway, right? There you were, dead in your sins, lost in your trespasses, uh, uh, under the wrath of God, and you're driving along on the highway. And someone says, hey, listen, have you heard about Jesus? And there you see Jesus over on the curb with his thumb out. And he says, hey, accept Jesus. And so you pull the car over. And you say, hey, 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 Jesus. Um, listen, I want, I, want to, I want to believe the gospel. I want to repent of my sins. Uh, and then you go around to the back of the car. And you open up the trunk. And you say, hey, Jesus, uh, you, can, you can ride in the trunk. And you get back in the car. And you go on your way. 
If things in life get rough, like you're having a bad time, you lose your job, need some money, you'll stop the car, get out, hey, Jesus, can you help me with this? You just come out the trunk, Jesus. And then whatever the, this problem gets solved, the cancer gets healed, you put Jesus back in the trunk and you go back on your life. Listen, that's, that's not true repentance. That's not true faith. Some of you aren't that crass. Some of you will be like, okay, Jesus, uh, uh, you can ride in the back seat. We can talk along the way, but ultimately I'm still going to be the one driving the car, and we can have a conversation. Some of you are even a little nicer than that. You'll at least let them ride co-pilot. You guys know what co-pilot is? They're the ones who just give navigational directions, and you can choose whether or not you actually want to listen to them. I'm going to go on a five-hour drive later today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to my wife uh, letting me know how to drive. But you, so some of you treat Jesus like that, like, oh, oh, should I do that? Maybe. I don't know. Listen, all of those situations is not true faith. It's not true repentance. What true faith and true repentance looks like in this illustration then is pulling over your life on the highway seeing Jesus for who he is, repenting, believing the gospel, giving Jesus the keys, letting him ride in the front, and you go ahead and get in the back seat or the side seat or perhaps even the trunk. That's what it means when it says that Jesus is Lord. He's the one driving. We've handed over all aspects of our life to him. There's no part of our life which he does not currently rule and reign. This is what salvation is. This is what it means to be made alive in Christ. This is what saving faith is. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord, as we examine the scriptures and the call to uh, that it's only by grace that all of this happens. You are the main actor. You're the one who gives us new hearts and new lives, and yet you call us into repenting, to believing, to having faith. Lord, we want to. We want to be like the men who Peter talked to in Acts chapter 2, who, who understood the weight of their sin, understood the, the, how guilty they truly were. Lord, all of us before you stand as guilty men and guilty women. But Lord, we believe that because of your kindness, because of your grace, because of your love, that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. That you can give us new hearts. You can create us new people from the inside out. That you can breathe your spirit upon us and giving us life. Father, part of living that life now means that you're the one in control. Lord, we repent. We, we repent every time we've stood up and declare that we are in control. I pray you continue to break our hearts over the sin which so easily besets us. May we trust again once more in the saving work of Jesus Christ. May we repent and then move on and keep on repenting and keep on believing until the day you call us home. Father, help us see the good news of Jesus as glorious, as beautiful, as truthful. Only you can open blinded eyes. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.